0: Well, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 24. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 24. We're continuing our way through the Gospel of Luke. And as you recall, last time we were together in this book, Jesus has transitioned from his public ministry in the region of Galilee to now journey on to Jerusalem to do what he came to this earth to do, to suffer, to die, and rise from the dead. So Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 24. Please pay careful attention, for this is the word of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, The one who hears, you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subjected to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and do not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. What comes to mind when you hear the words, Be joyful. For some of you, after hearing such words, you may think it's it's another trite expression, another overused expression. For others, it may seem insensitive. How dare you say I should be joyful when I'm going through such difficult circumstances? For others of you, it may seem subjective. What does it even mean to be joyful? Joy is one of those emotions that are, that's quite elusive, isn't it? The moment we start to focus upon it, it seems to evade us. Well the Apostle Paul in, chapter, in Philippians chapter four verse four, remember the passage that we read for our reading of the law, He says, "To rejoice, In the Lord always." It's an intriguing statement, isn't it? Rejoice always. I believe Jesus here in this passage is is saying a similar thing but expounding on this sentiment a bit more. In fact, in verse 20, Jesus tells his disciples to rejoice. And the verb tense that he uses in the original language denotes that this is not a one-time action that he's envisioning his disciples to do. As if as soon as they rejoice, once they cross it off their list and on to the next thing. Now Jesus envisions this being an ongoing, habitual practice of his disciples. That is to say, he's envisioning that they rejoice always. I also believe that Jesus tells us what it means to rejoice specifically in the Lord. And this evening, I want us to focus on the three things that this passage calls us to rejoice in. We are called to rejoice in the Lord's work. We are called to rejoice in the Lord's book. And we are called to rejoice in the Lord's spirit. And these are things, as we will soon see, Things that are steadfast and immovable in our life, things that we can rejoice in always. Well, this area of, of Western Washington has been the most beautiful area I've witnessed, especially when it's clear and you can see these majestic views of the mountains, whether it be Rainier or the Olympics or even the Cascades. It's beautiful. But as we all know, we're entering those winter months when it is quite gloomy and overcast. And those majestic views of the mountains are hidden. It's easy as month rolls upon month of clouds and gray to forget that those majestic views lie just on the other side of those clouds. In a similar way, the clouds of our earthly circumstances oftentimes obscure our vision of these realities the Lord's work, the Lord's book, and the Lord's spirit. And so my aim, my goal this evening is to help us all peel back the layers of the clouds of our earthly circumstances and see these realities that are steadfast and immovable, even more steadfast and immovable than the mountains which surround us. Let's first consider how we are called to rejoice in the Lord's work called the Rejoice in the Lord's Work. Well, I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you are somewhat pessimistic about the state of affairs in our society, in our culture, in our communities? How many of you have been pessimistic about the state of the American church even in the past year or or 18 months? The vision that's ensued all over the place. We all can say that it's quite easy to become negative pretty quickly about the state of affairs that are all around us. Well, this passage is making no promises about our culture, our society, our nation, or any other nation for that matter, but it is reminding us about the nature of the kingdom of God. It's reminding us of the Lord's work. You'll see that this passage begins with Jesus sending out 72 of his disciples On a missionary journey. Now, this missionary journey is very similar to the missionary journey we saw the 12 uh, were on in in the beginning of chapter 9. They went forth to these various villages. They didn't take any provisions with them. They were to heal, to bring forth the kingdom of God. They also were to shake off their dust, uh, the dust of their feet from the villages that rejected their message. There's lots of similarities. But why this number 72? Why did Jesus pick 72 of his followers to go forth in this journey? Well, if you have your Bibles open, I believe most of your English translations will have a footnote that says some manuscripts read 70. A footnote with a number 72 that says some manuscripts read 70. 70. It's true, there's good Greek manuscripts that read that Jesus sent 70 disciples and some read that Jesus sent 72 disciples. Now the question is, what's original? What did Luke actually write? Is it 70 or is it 72? Whichever option uh, we pick, scholars are divided on this issue. I, I don't think it really matters because the symbolism is the same. And the symbolism of both these numbers denote a universal mission. All the peoples of the world or nations. For instance, uh, the, number 70, uh, the number 70 is found in Genesis 10 and 11 to refer to the 70 nations that exist in the world. We also know that Moses had 70 elders. There was a rabbinic tradition around Jesus' day that said that Uh, there were 70 languages that had known about the commandments of Moses. It's universal significance. All the peoples of the world are nations. Well, 72 also has this symbolism. The Greek translation, the Hebrew Old Testament, the Septuagint, was translated into the Greek language uh, by 72 scholars, or that's what the tradition is. Again, the Hebrew Scriptures remain known to the world, to the Greek-speaking nations. 72 also uh, is referred to an apocryphal book that states that there were 72 kings in all the world. Genesis 10 and 11, in that Greek translation of the Old Testament, refers to 72 nations in the world. So again, we have that same symbolism, that universal mission of all the peoples of Of the world. So, this missionary journey that Jesus sends these 72 disciples, or possibly 70 disciples, upon to bring forth the kingdom of God in the region of Palestine, this foreshadows Acts, Luke's second book. When this good news of the kingdom will spread far beyond just the region of Palestine, but truly to the ends of the earth, as Paul ends up in Rome at the end of that, that book of Acts. And we live in this era, this era of 72, where this good news of the kingdom is not restricted to the region of Palestine, but it's gone forth to the nations. And brothers and sisters, we're in Washington. That's a long ways away from Israel. So this limited mission that we see in the beginning of chapter 10 points forward to the universal mission of Christ as it's displayed not only through the apostles but even through the post apostolic era. So we live in this era of, of 72. You'll notice that in verse 17 after these disciples come back from this missionary journey, they're excited. They come back with joy. We have been exercising authority over demons and spirits. And Jesus says, he says this in response. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What is Jesus referring to here? Well, in Revelation chapter 12, we get a glimpse into this cosmic battle that's going on between Michael and his angels as well as... uh, between, uh, Michael and his angels on one hand, and the devil on the other hand. And we read that Jesus, in his first coming, specifically through his death and resurrection, defeated the devil, cast down the, the devil, as it were, in this cosmic warfare. That's what Jesus is referring to here. In fact, in Luke 11, Jesus will say that he came to this earth to bind the strong man which is that ancient serpent, that serpent that we read about in Genesis chapter three, where God promised that one day his son would crush the head. So yes, Satan has some limited power in this age, but its power is on a leash. And think of Jesus in his first coming as delivering that decisive death blow to the serpent. And in this age, he's he's gasping for his final breaths. So we live in the age of the 72. We live in the age in which Satan has been defeated. He has been bound. He no longer, his accusations have no power over the people of God. Yes, that, that doesn't mean that we should expect life to be easy here in this age. The New Testament is quite clear that this age is an age of suffering, but it's likewise an age of gospel growth. And those are the two things that we have to hold up in tension. But every day that this present creation persists is another day in which Christ is continuing to lay another brick to his kingdom, as it were. Another day in which all the fullness of the elect of God have not been brought in. The Lord is indeed at work, building his kingdom, pressing forth this gospel, to regions of the earth that previously not heard known about this gospel. So it's easy, right, it's easy for us to let the clouds of current affairs, the front page of the newspaper, to cloud out, obscure this reality, that the Lord is indeed at work, building his kingdom, advancing his mission. We are to rejoice, rejoice in the Lord's work. Let's also consider how we are to rejoice in the Lord's book. As I mentioned in verses 17 through 20, these disciples, they come back with joy, we learn. They were rejoicing in the Lord's work. And Jesus, in response, he's not rebuking the fact that they're rejoicing in the Lord's work. That's a good thing. But he's reminding them that there's something even more ultimate than the Lord's work. And that is that their names are written in the Lord's book. That is to say, their names are found in this Lamb's book of life. And he tells them, rejoice in this. Rejoice that your names are written in this book. Now there are a number of references, as you may know, to this book, this registry, this divine registry that God has, where all the people of God are recorded in. And whether or not there's a literal book that's residing in the heavens, we don't know, but the symbolic significance is, is true nonetheless. And that is to say, God had a particular number of people whom he personally knows and cares for. That's what this idea is conveying. God keeps a registry. Think for example uh, of, of the personal nature of having one's name remembered, even among us as, as, as human beings. You know, recently Mackenzie and I were uh, in Leavenworth for our anniversary and we stayed at a, a bed and breakfast and at breakfast one morning we met a couple A a nice couple, friendly couple, and had a conversation with them. And the next day, as we were checking out, we ran into them again. And they remembered both of our names. And we both commented to one another how rare that is. For strangers, whom we shared a a 10-minute conversation with, to remember our names. It was meaningful. Well, if it's meaningful for strangers to remember our names, how much more meaningful is it when God... The Creator of the heavens and the earth remembers your name, cares for you personally. That's mind blowing. The Sovereign God of all things knows you personally, takes an interest in your sufferings and life circumstances. Revelation 20 is one of those passages which also speaks to this registry, this book of life. In Revelation 20, John is detailing what's going to happen at Christ's second coming. Christ's second coming, there's going to be a great judgment. A judgment in which every single human being will have to stand before. And at this judgment, there, there are going to be two judgments according to two different books. There will be a judgment according to the book, that is to say the book of life. And in this book, the names of individuals are recorded, but only their names, not their deeds or their transgressions. And John says that if your name is found in the book of life, you pass through judgment. But if you're found in the books, John refers to it in the plural, the books, it's not just your name that's found there, but it's all of your deeds transgressions, shortcomings. And you will face judgment according to what's written in the books. And that's bad news for all of us, isn't it? Consequently, John says, those whose names are found in the books will be cast out into Hades, the judgment of God. So which book do you want to be judged according to? The book or the books? And the reason why the book ensures that we'll pass through judgment is because this is the Lamb's book of life. And the Lamb doesn't lose any case that he represents. He ensures that every one of his people will reach the new creation. In fact, our own Heidelberg Catechism reflects this understanding. When it's going through the Apostles' Creed, it asks, what comfort do you receive from the article Uh, what comfort do you receive from the fact that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead? The question betrays the answer. It says that if you are trusting in Christ, the final judgment is not something to be terrified about. Rather, it's a comfort to you because you will pass through judgment as God displays his mercy to you. So the chief shepherd, he has a list, a registry whom he cares for personally. Well, it seemed to make sense then that Christ's under-shepherds, that is to say ministers and pastors in this age, would also have a select number of people whom they care for personally, a registry as it were. This is the one, of the, one of the reasons why the Reformed churches have historically practiced membership. Christ cares for a A particular people personally and his under shepherds are to care for a particular people personally. In fact 1st Peter 5 Peter exhorts the elders there and says shepherd the flock of God which is among you. He doesn't say shepherd every person throughout the entire world who names the name of Christ. He says no those who are among you that is to say those who have submitted to your leadership and are under your care. Shepherd them. If you do, you will will receive the the great crown of life from the chief shepherd when he returns. And furthermore, one of the main ways in which the chief shepherd cares, comforts those on his list, in his registry, is through the local church, and more particularly through the care of of his under-shepherds. so for those who, who fail to join a local church, you're missing out on one of, the, one of the main benefits that Christ promised to give those who are in his book of life, on his registry. So we are to rejoice. Rejoice in the, in, in the Lord's book. And we all know that the clouds of our circumstances and past experiences do obscure our vision of this reality. Sometimes it can be isolation. Sometimes it can be loneliness. Sometimes it can be past hurts from loved ones, Christians, even from churches. It's hard for us to conceive the reality that the God of the universe actually does care for us. Let me remind you that he does. It's something that we can take joy in no matter what we're going through. Lastly, we're called to rejoice in the Lord's Spirit. So if you look with me in verse 21, we read that that Jesus rejoices in the Holy Spirit. Now, if Jesus rejoices in the Holy Spirit, it's probably good evidence that we also should find our joy in the Holy Spirit. But what does that mean? What does it mean to rejoice in the Holy Spirit? Let's continue on in verse 21. Jesus uh, continues uh, as he prays to his father and says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, or literally good pleasure. Now this word that, Paul, that Luke uses for little children is actually the word that ordinarily was used for infants, very, very small children. Now there may be some connotations to the fact that the things of the kingdom do come to children. They're members of the covenant of grace. But more explicitly, I believe, Jesus has a, a metaphorical meaning to this idea of, of little children. Now he's referring to members of his disciples as little children, likely members who had embraced the things of the kingdom, but members but but individuals who were not educated or extremely intelligent by any earthly standard, but yet they had come to a saving knowledge of Christ and his kingdom. And there are those who are wise and educated of Jesus' day who have completely rejected the things of the kingdom. Jesus is not saying that if you're wise, smart, and educated, you're somehow not able to come into the kingdom of God. If you are uneducated, not wise, not intelligent, you're somehow privileged to come into his kingdom. That's not his point. His point is that no amount of human intelligence or wisdom and bring someone into this kingdom. You can take the most wise, educated, intelligent person on this earth and left to their own devices, they will never accept the things of the kingdom. That's his point. So the solution is the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God needs to come in and and give us new hearts. Hearts that are willing and able to embrace the things of the kingdom of God. Illuminate our hearts. This is the Holy Spirit's work then, is a work of illumination. Illuminating our hearts to see his truth. Softening our hard hearts. Causing us to suppress the truth less and less. Have you ever wondered why why do you feel convicted over your sin? Have you ever wondered why you embrace such a seemingly ridiculous story as a Jewish man suffering and dying for the sins of the world? Have you ever wondered why you have any desire at all to grow in the knowledge of someone you've never physically met by studying an ancient book? Well, it's not owing to any inherent goodness or abilities on your own, but it's because of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the one who's changed your heart and given you eyes to see and ears to hear, as Jesus says. Furthermore, have you ever wondered as you think about your own Christian life in those years in which you've been a Christian, and in a lot of ways we can, we can all Summarize, our own Christian growth is a, a growth in coming to embrace and understand more and more of who Christ is for us. And why? Why is that so, uh, such a necessary part of our, our growth and sanctification? Well, it's because the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. His main mission is to reveal to you more and more of the fullness of Christ. As we all know, the Spirit's work oftentimes feels ordinary in our life, doesn't it? Times can feel as if nothing is going on. In those moments, we can be tempted to think, "What has God up to? Am I just like that unfinished project sitting in our garages that's probably never going to come to completion?" Because in those moments, we need to remind ourselves of this reality: that the Lord, the Father. Our Father, his good pleasure, his delight is to reveal his Son to you through the power of his Holy Spirit or to rejoice in the Lord's Spirit. Well, beloved in the Lord, I mentioned that, that oftentimes the clouds of our, our present circumstances obscure our, real, uh, our, our vision of these realities, of the Lord's work, of the Lord's book and of the Lord's spirit. Now this text is not promising a change in the weather. The clouds of your trials and tribulations may persist, but it is reminding you what lies behind those clouds. Realities that are fixed, steadfast, and immovable. And that is what we are to take joy in. So let us